Last week, <clears throat> we discussed somehow the enemy Satan works. Take just a few moments to review. <clears throat> His primary method is to lure us into doubting God's word. He came to Eve, and, you know, he tempted via doubt. Did God really say? He came to Christ after Christ had heard you are my son and you, I'm well pleased and, you know, I love you. The serpent came, well, Satan, I guess I should say, came to him. If you are the son of God, turn these stones <clears throat> to bread. So he is always tempting through doubt. He also tempts us to lure us into bondage, <clears throat> whereas God promotes and desires freedom. And as you look at the life of Christ, you will find that as he healed, as he cast out demons, he brought freedom. Satan brought bondage and control. So some ways that the enemy seeks to lure us into doubting. <clears throat> he tempts us to neglect the creator God and a correct gospel. <clears throat> we discussed that last week. He tempts us to doubt his existence. Thus, we don't realize we're in a spiritual battle. How many of us in the last week have gotten frustrated with people or circumstances? <clears throat> and we made that a big issue. Failing to grasp that we're in a spiritual battle. And I think we all get into that probably more than <clears throat> we would like. He tempts us and lures us to live our Christian life in our own strength. <clears throat> You know, you can live the Christian life, just try harder. <clears throat> and Christ would say, I am your life. It's not a matter of trying harder. <clears throat> it's a matter of living in dependency upon me and what I've already provided. <clears throat> a fourth way he tempts, <clears throat> he tempts us to believe and pursue a point of view or present a view of men and women <clears throat> That undermines the biblical teaching on manhood <clears throat> and womanhood. I am of the conviction, <clears throat> as I study scripture, let's suppose we have a pyramid. The foundation to the pyramid, that which a pyramid is built on, is creator God and the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> The next, the very bottom of the pyramid is a biblical view of manhood and womanhood. And part of the reason I have come to that conclusion is that Scripture begins with a creator God. In the beginning, God created. In John 1, it talks about Christ. It talks about Christ being involved in creation. And then he creates Adam and Eve, and he establishes a biblical pattern for manhood and womanhood. <coughs> If you break that pattern of manhood and womanhood, what happens? It affects the family. It affects generations. It affects the church. It affects church leadership. It affects community and national leadership. It affects world leadership. <clears throat> so if you can undermine there is no creator God, you can undermine the gospel, cast doubt on that, and then you cast doubt on what is a man and what is a woman you basically have won the war. Not the battle, 
the war. So I got a question. I'm looking for a response. How does our world define a man? <clears throat> how does our world define a man? And the next question will be, how does our world define a woman? <clears throat> what is manhood to the world? <clears throat> Mike. Okay, anyone else? How does the world define man, manhood? Peggy? Um, their success at their job. Okay. Anyone else? How about womanhood? How does the world define womanhood? <coughs> Hey, Karen. Okay. Any other response? Peggy. <coughs> Men not needed. Okay. Okay. Let's take our Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> the enemy lures us to doubt what God says about manhood and womanhood. And as you look at down through the pages of history, is done very well, beginning with Adam and beginning with Eve. And it's been true ever since. Genesis 1, verse 26, probably maybe somewhat of a familiar verse. Genesis 1 and verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So who is created in the image of God? Pardon? Man. And who does man refer to in this passage? The male or the female or both? It refers to both. That's very, very critical. So God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Male and female created, both in the image of God. Go over to chapter 2. 
and verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Here he is referring to the male, referring to Adam. Now get down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care or take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Who was told to take care of the garden? Who was told who should, or what tree they should not eat of? Look at verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now please recognize Adam is given the responsibility to care for the garden. He is given the command, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. It's not good for the man to be alone, so God's going to make a suitable helper. Now if you stop there, you have a fairly good definition of manhood and womanhood. The man obviously was to be leading. The woman was to be a suitable helper. Both being created in the image of God. Now it's interesting, next, the text says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called them, each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. And then he creates Eve. It's interesting that I think two things come out in verses 18, 19, and the first part of verse 20. The first is that this emphasizes there's no suitable helper for Adam. So the cows come before him, and Adam says, they're going to be cows. The lions come, they're going to be lions. The elephants come, they're going to be elephants. And I'm sure by the time the second or third pair came before Adam, he thought, hmm, male and female. Only male here. Male and female. Only male here. Male and female. I'm one. Male and female. I'm one. Secondly, the naming of the animals in Scripture, when naming takes place, that implies that one is responsible in leading. You will find that after the fall, Adam, the man, named his wife Eve. What is Adam doing in naming the animals? He's fulfilling his role to be over the earth and to take care of it by naming the animals. Middle verse 20, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and closed up the place with, the, <clears throat> closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God called the, or made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. 
The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. He names her as he did with the animals. God had already established in chapter 2 that Adam was the one who was to be leading. Eve is to be the helper. And again, implies his role as leading and that he names her. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. <clears throat> the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. God's plan. Stop at Genesis 2. You have a fairly good definition of manhood and womanhood. Everything beyond this point builds upon that basic view of manhood and womanhood. Now, the enemy has worked hard to undermine that. The description that was given by a number of you as far as what manhood is viewed today is pretty true. Men can be very controlling, dictatorial, Mean, cutting, controlling. But they also can be very Christ-like. A humble, gentle leader. But the enemy is seeking to undermine over and over again. Watch an advertisement for a truck. They're appealing to, many times, the base quality of a man. You know, the good guys drive the nice trucks down the road, and the inferior guys drive the ones with the holes in the side. The good guys have all the girls. And the guys that aren't so good don't have all the girls. The good guys make the big bucks and the guys that aren't so good don't make the big bucks. And you could just go on and on. The enemy has also done a very good job of undermining womanhood. Unless I miss my guess, the average woman, the average girl struggles with accepting her physical appearance the way she was created. Our culture bombards us with that. It says a woman has to look, whatever beautiful is, I'm not going to even try to define it. The whole advertising industry is based on that. And we could say a host of other things. The world defines womanhood as being able to attract a man, primarily via sex. But there's a flip side also, where God has worked and there's women who are helpers. Women who accept who they are 
in Christ. But look at chapter 3, how the enemy works. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, In talking to the woman, he undermined God's plan. Who should have he talked to? Adam. Adam was there, and I don't know why Adam didn't say, hold it, serpent. If you're going to talk to either one of us, it's me. I was the one who was given the command. Talk to me. But nevertheless, what's he doing? Casting doubt on God's plan. He said to the woman, did God really say? Did God really say? That's casting doubt. Did God really say? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. And again, we could discuss, we won't spend time on it tonight. But he's undermining what God said by not even quoting it correctly. So the woman has played into the deception. The woman said to the serpent, she didn't step back and say, now I shouldn't be talking to the serpent here, it should be my husband. Eve didn't step up and say, look, I'll be a man here, serpent. If you want to talk, talk to me. So the serpent said, or she said, we meet from the fruit of the trees in the garden. But the, God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Why in the world would Adam and Eve want to know evil? All they knew was good. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave also... She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now what is the enemy doing? He's bringing doubt. They yield to the doubt. They eat of the fruit. And what happens immediately? They're in bondage. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. God created them naked. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And as you study the text, that's not only a physical nakedness. That's an emotional, mental, spiritual nakedness. There was nothing to hide. Don't ask me if it happened this way. So Adam came in from taking care of the garden or something, and Eve said, well, how was your day today? And an hour later, Eve says, boy, that was a good conversation. 
So we guys come home from work today, and our wife says, how was your day today? Well, okay. What happened at work today? Not too much. Did you have a good day? Okay. Any ways I can pray for you? I guess. The nakedness is gone. So husband says to his wife, Would you do shopping today? Shop. What did you buy? Oh, some things. Well, how much money did you spend? Some. See, she doesn't want to tell me because she spent $1,000. See, the nakedness is gone. See, doubt, as far as what a man is and what a woman is, brought slavery brought bondage where they cover themselves their openness their nakedness is gone and even before you get to verse 7 you find that that has begun to be gone because Adam did not step up to his leadership role so what happens next then the man or then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as a or as he was walking in the garden the cool of the day. And apparently that happened before. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Hmm. Now the serpent really brought freedom here. Now they're hiding from their creator. There was openness before. There was nakedness in a relationship. And by nakedness I mean openness. But the Lord God called to whom? The man. Who did the serpent come to? Woman. So he's going back to his created order. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. At least honest there. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the fruit? Or eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from. The man said, yes, I did. I didn't step up and take the leadership when the serpent came. My wife took over the role. I was responsible for sitting back. And I ate someone. She offered it to me. I'm fully responsible. No. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now he's accusing God. See, doubt is bringing more bondage. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You get to chapter four of Genesis. Chapter four of Genesis, and what do you find? Cain killing Abel. More bondage. You get over to Genesis chapter 9. I'm sorry, chapter 7, 8, and 9, where we have the flood. More bondage. Because now people are so evil that there's only eight righteous people left on the earth. 
get over to Genesis chapter 12 and we find that Abram is protecting himself and letting his wife be taken by Pharaoh. Rather than stepping up to the plate and saying, Pharaoh, she's my wife. And if you want to do anything about it, let's fight. I'm not sure that's a proper response, but you know, he wasn't, no, he's going to make his wife lie. Half lie. Get over to chapter 16, and he's not having a child, and he, or, uh, Sarah says to Abraham, well, why don't you go sleep with Hagar, and let's have a child by her. And he yields, he didn't say no. Sarah, that wouldn't be the proper thing to do. We need to trust God. Get over to chapter 38 and 39, and you find there that Judah has sexual relationships with his daughter-in-law unknowingly because he didn't know who she was. And that leads into all kinds of problems. It all goes back to a distorted view of manhood and womanhood. The enemy tempts over and over again to lure us into buying into a distorted view of manhood and womanhood. Until Jesus Christ came on the scene, he was a man. And it's through him that we can be men and we can be women and move in that direction as God designed. So if you can distort creation and say, well, there is no creation, you can distort the gospel and you distort manhood and womanhood, pretty well got the battle. And the enemy lures us in that direction. Now think about what that looks like in a couple of examples, and we'll wrap it up in a few minutes, how it impacts the church. Most of us who are married probably dated some. <clears throat> some of you who are younger will date or maybe are dating. And usually dating has a purpose. I want to get a mate. Now, did you hear what I just said? I want to get a mate. That's a distortion that affects marriage. If I'm dating to get, in marriage it's not getting, it's giving. I've not been called in marriage to get from my wife. I've been called to love her and give myself to her as Christ gave the church. She's called to give herself to me and be a helper and so on. So think about dating. Well, what do I get out of this relationship? Well, hope, ultimately, I hope we get married. I'm not saying you can't date, but maybe change a viewpoint. So you're a guy, you're going to invite a gal for a date. Lead. Call her. Don't wait for her to call you. Open the door for her. Don't wait for her to talk. I better watch what I say here. <laughs> I incriminate myself. 
be willing to lead in talking. You know, just, it could be a, a lot of things. For you gals, don't think you're going to get this guy by giving him what he might want sexually. Because that's a distortion. He is to love you enough to protect you. And if there is temptation, him taking the leadership and saying, no, God designed this for marriage. But our culture tells us something different. I may miss my guess on this, and I realize culture may change. You girls will be tempted and will be asked by a guy to give yourself to him sexually. That goes back to a view of manhood and womanhood. The, man, the guy who wants to do that with you is not a man. He's a jerk. And beyond that. And I say that strongly. Because it's a distortion of God's design. And if a woman or a girl has to give herself to a man to get him, what will she have to do to keep him? A lot. But it all goes back to a view of manhood and womanhood. Guys think, well, woman's to satisfy me, a girl's to satisfy me. No. You're to love her. You're to lead her. Yes, she has a responsibility, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but you have a responsibility also. And that just distorts the whole thing. But just think about the dating. A guy approaching dating with, how can I give to this gal? How can I help her mature in Christ? How can I be... One with her emotionally and mentally. And a gal thinking, how can I compliment this guy? How can I be a helper to him? And they're working in that in their courting relationship. Another way that the enemy, in the context of manhood and womanhood, distorts that we face every day is that women are seen as objects. Men take advantage of them. You can drive through West Nanticoke, and there's an establishment of business there. And I think most of you know what I'm referring to. And if you look at the sign, I don't know what the time is or anything, but it says, no cover. Is it all naked or something? I, but what is happening? Women are being used as objects. You say, Pastor, you noticed that sign? Yeah, I noticed the sign. Not because I'm planning to go in there. But it breaks my heart every time I drive by. Because it's a distortion of God's design. You can watch your TV. And you will see women not dressed so modestly advertising anything from a car 
to a truck, to a host of things. That's a distortion of God's view of manhood and of womanhood. The whole issue of human trafficking, there are thousands upon thousands of girls in America being kidnapped and sold into sex trafficking here in our nation. There are thousands upon thousands brought from other countries to the U.S. to be involved in the sex industry. That's a distortion of a biblical view of manhood and womanhood. See, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Men, many times, are passive. It goes back to Genesis 3. Adam was passive. He didn't step up. Women many times are frustrated at men. And some women think men are jerks. And you could use some other terms that I've heard by women. And those cases that I've heard it, I had to say, amen, that's true. From their experience, that's true. But you see, the enemy is behind all of that. Distorting a biblical view of manhood and womanhood goes back to Genesis 3, and Christ came to change that. And he can take men and help them to be growing into manhood. He can take women and help them to be growing into womanhood. But the enemy is out to distort, to change that which God has designed for being good. We're bombarded with it. And you say, what do you do with it? Seek to be a man, seek to be a woman, and help others to be men and to be women. We can all look at our past probably and find times that we didn't quite measure up. God's grace forgives. God's grace enables us to lay that aside. I'm not saying we just put it out of our memory. And it can move us towards being what God called us to be. But see the enemy. Those men that may not be what men should be, see the enemy working in their lives. Those women who are not what God would want them to be, see the enemy at work in their lives. And the solution is not to back away from them. The solution is not to criticize them. The solution is to draw near to them, build a relationship with them, and point them to Jesus Christ. Because he becomes our life. Let's pray together. Thanks, Father. for your word, your goodness to us. And we know we live in a fallen world. We know the enemy works. May we see how he works, how he lures us to doubt concerning manhood and womanhood, and then how to live and respond accordingly. 
we see the distortion in our world every day. <clears throat> Many of us have experienced the distortion. I think I could say all of us in some way. May we understand who we are in Christ and just humbly live in dependency upon him. Not to be angry what may have happened in our lives or angry over what is happening in the lives of others, but to be ambassadors, to point people to Christ. And in our own lives, when we struggle, to share with others, to let them come alongside us, to encourage us, to give us some direction. Father, may we be men, may we be women, may we be boys, may we be girls that are more and more displaying your design for us and in the process resist the enemy. We desire for an unbelieving world to look at us and say, my, I desire that. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.